Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 114 of the show with Walid Ali. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. You can subscribe to this show and it will magically appear in your phone or however you listen every Monday morning in Australia, every Sunday afternoon in the States. Um, you can subscribe at osherginsberg.com. You can also sign up. Uh, I have a mailing list that's on my Facebook page. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, find me on Twitter. If you want to email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thanks to everybody that's new. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks to the people that told their mates to listen to the show. That really helps a lot. If you just tell a friend to listen to the show, that helps me out enormously. By the time you hear this, um, I will have been awake since 3.45 a.m. Because as of this Monday, the 7th of December, I'll be doing a few weeks of national breakfast radio, almost almost national. You'll hear us around Australia, but not in Sydney. Rove and Sam continue there. But I'm really looking forward to it. Really looking forward to it. We have a great team, a great production team, and we're going to bring some fun shows. And uh, I get to do it with the delightful Heather Maltman. You may remember her from uh, the TV show The Bachelor. Uh, yeah, she and I will be on the telly, which on the radio, which I'm looking forward to. <sighs> Quacky. Oh, he's very beautiful. Sorry about that. Um, to check in, I um I finally gave in. I finally gave in and I I did it. I went shopping for clothes yesterday. After four straight years of wearing the same five black t shirts and the same two pairs of trousers, I asked for Audrey's help. <laughs> I said, honey, I'm yeah, I'm going to need new clothes. And uh, we went shopping. And she was kind enough to drag me around town and show me where to go. But I'll, I was trying to explain to her why I'd avoided going clothes shopping for so long. And I, 
I kind of get uncomfortable about big groups of people sometimes to the point that since I've been with Audrey, I've traveled into the CBD of Sydney to like actually park and go shopping more times since I've known Audrey than in the last 10 years put together. Honestly, I would, I would think to myself, I need a new T-shirt. I should go to the shops, but I don't know where to park. And I don't know where the shop is, and I'll have to talk to people I don't know, and it might not fit. This T-shirt will be fine for now. <laughs> and then I'll just go back to whatever I was doing, and I just did that for like once a month for four years. <laughs> but but at one, at one point uh, yesterday, I did turn to her, and I did have to tap out. I'm okay. I'm all right more and more, but I do need to take a break sometimes. At least I know that about myself now, that when, when I'm around heaps of people or like say, for example, we've been at a dinner where it's, you know, us and a lot of people, I'll find that afterwards I just need like five or ten just to chill before I can plug back in. Um, I don't know why, but things are a bit easier that way. Anyway, it's enough to know. I know it enough to, to just take a moment when I need to, and, and she's super cool about that. She she's aware, which is I'm very happy about. Anyway, I've blabbed on a bit too much. Let me tell you about my guest today. I'm so excited I got to speak with this guy, Walid Ali. He is the anchor of the very popular national nightly news program, The Project, in Australia. He's an author. He's an academic. He's an uh, op-ed columnist quite often. He is a lecturer at Monash University where he's also a staff member at the Global Terrorist Research Centre. He's a dad uh, and he's very well measured, very lovely, very funny man. He, he exudes a calm about him that is somewhat comforting and a, a learned way of speaking that makes you feel confident that everything's actually going to be all right. Now, it was a show day. He was only about four hours away from going on air or three hours away from going on air, and they still had a bunch of production meetings to do. So we only had 45 minutes to talk, so I should get straight into it. Um, come and enjoy. It was a nice, cool, air-conditioned room on a hot day. Come and enjoy a nice chat with Waleed Ali. Yeah, how are you, Walid? I'm well. How are you, mate? I'm all right. I'm I'm well. I'm okay. What, what, I'm okay. Fairly sedate. What, what's wrong? Well, my yeah. tell me about the downside of the life of Osher Ginsburg. Well, my you know, I I was born with a different brain, yeah. so I have a brain that um, can ob- obsess on things yeah. and uh, get stuck in obsessional anxiety. So, what are you obsessed? I about? had a bit of a, a big trigger this morning, and I've been I've spent the last kind of four hours trying to breathe my way down from the edge. Do you want to do this now? <laughs> it no, sounds actually, to me like you should. No, be doing I'm all right. Things. I'm I'm happy now because I'm doing something of purpose. I'm connecting with another human being. I'm in the present right. moment. I'm in reality. This is important. Can I ask you a question? Go. Uh, whatever this triggering thing was, yeah. To what extent was it related to social media? What my trigger was on social media, or was it related in any way to it? Oh, my trigger was on social media. Yeah, yeah. I hear too many stories like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should start it with this because, well, yeah, because when I met you, I said, "Oh man, great! I'll keep in touch on Twitter." I don't have Twitter. No. In fact, I'm, in fact, I think the first time we met in person. Periscope was involved, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. At the Grand Prix. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, I, I'm happy for you to share as much or as little as you want to about this, but I'm intrigued about or by the fact that this was a social media-induced 
funk. Yeah. 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 The trigger's still real. I still get, like, I can get triggered by people just talking about it. Yeah, right. Um, and I, I can get triggered by reading stuff about it. Yeah. But nine times out of ten, the trigger comes from looking at Twitter. Yeah, I don't, like, I, I just, I really struggle to see how this is something that's enhanced the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's another conversation. Possibly not one you're into. No, we'll get, no, we'll, I think we can circle all the way back to that. Okay. Just make sure, yeah, I'm still recording. Great. So, so we, we, just for folks who are listening, yeah. um, both outside of this city and outside of this country, can mm. you tell people where we are right now? So this is a, a room that I think is officially, uh, officially called the Zen Room, which doesn't describe it at all. Um, there's not a single water feature in sight. It seems quite crammed. There's a now extinct Expedit Ikea um, yes. You can't buy them anymore. The collector's item now. <laughs> yeah, it's quite remarkable. Really, it's just another meeting room here at the offices of the project, uh, which, for those who don't know, is a TV show on Channel 10, which is a free-to-air commercial network here in Australia. And um, we have a, we basically occupy one end of a floor. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite a big team, and this room is just kind of here. It's a uh, it's a one hour live nightly news yes. wrap-up show. Yeah, sort of. I yeah. don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is. I don't think we in the office have any idea what it is. I've been saying for a long time, we don't know what we're doing, but we do it well. Five nights a week for over six years now. Yeah, yeah. Pretty awesome. Well, not on my part, but So this part of Melbourne, we're in the Paran. I think I think this might technically be South Yarra. South yeah, Yarra. That sort of area. Yeah. Richmond's uh, not far from here. Is this far from where you grew up? Yeah, oh, it's all relative, right? So I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, which is probably about 25, 30 k's out of the city, and I lived out there until January this year, so I only just moved closer into work. Um, but, you know, it, this is my city. Yeah. I've only lived in Melbourne, really. There was a brief period when I was about probably three or four when I lived in Nigeria for 10 months, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. Dad had some teaching job or something i don't know i don't know what it was i was, I was four uh and all i remember about it actually i don't know what i remember because like most of my memories are probably made from my parents telling me about it but apparently the mangoes were unbelievable you could pretty much stick a straw in them and drink them it's just phenomenal and every time i wanted a mango my parents would have to strip me completely naked and chuck me in the bath and just let me go to town and then it was bath time <laughs> that's it that and I had an imaginary friend called Shandy who lived in the roof. That's all I got. Apart from that, it's been Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, unlike me, you were born in Australia. I wasn't yeah. born in Australia. But like, as I like to say, I'm an immigrant, but I'm white, so no one cares. Exactly. You, when you get in a cab, people don't turn around and say, no, where are you from? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then it's not a circular conversation that goes for about half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas what they mean, in the immortal words of Matt O'Kine, is, why are you black? <laughs> That's what they're really asking. Yeah. But so, they, they just can't ask that. So, so what's, your, what's your parents' story? It sounds like if he's ready to drop, drop, drop down tools and go to Nigeria. I don't know what that was about. I really don't. Anyway, my parents migrated to Australia from Egypt, but they met here. They didn't yeah. meet in Egypt. What year did they come out here? Oh, like mid-60s. Oh, okay. So a long time ago. So I, after I'm, 58, after it all started changing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I, I was quite young in my family. So my, I've got one brother and he's 10 years older than me. So... Um, by the time I came along, they were kind of established in Australia, but they weren't intending to stay here. Like, um, for starters, they didn't know each other until they came here. But mum is like, I don't know, when would she have come in the 60s? So what's that? 
50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably 50 years next year, actually, I think. Anyway, so she's like 50 years into a two-year visit, you know, so that kind of <laughs> My dad's the same. Kind of situation. Yeah. We came for a year. Yeah. 74. It's just a very long year. Yeah, it's 41 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a 41 yeah. year long, 41 long year. Yeah. And, and um, if your father's a teacher, you, but your folks are academics? Well, so dad, my dad died last year, but um, he was a lot of things. So he was in academia. Um, he came out actually and did a master's in physics, I think, or chemistry at Monash Uni, which is where I now teach, um, which is interesting. But he then was like a principal of secondary schools and then he and a teacher in other ones, and then he threw all that in and he started his own civil engineering business. And so all my life he was a civil engineer. I didn't know him as a teacher or in academia at all. Um, but, yeah, so he had his own firm and, um, it, yeah, he built good houses. I realise that now. I didn't at the time. They are all the same to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then after a while, he, he, then he just decided he was going to stop and run a nursing home. So he went and did that and did an arbitration course and then did arbitrating and like he's just one of these guys who would just instantly turn in some completely random direction and end up taking over that particular field it's quite weird so i'm interested in your experience of growing up in australia i because we weren't from australia Mm. we were living in adelaide for a while then we moved to brisbane yeah um does not compare to your experience but i was the only kid eating the things that I was eating for lunch. Similar. Yeah. You know, I was the only kid who had a weird last name that had omelets on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. So we Did were, you write the omelets? Yeah. I, I so you have. stuck with that? Yeah, I always have. Because you could have just dropped it. I always stuck with no it. No one's going to. Motley Crue has them. Motorhead has them. True. Fair enough. Oh, so you're going for like a rock crate. Totally. With your... Can I ask? Because yeah. Ginsburg is, I'm assuming, the anglicisation of it. Uh, no, that's it. That's actually it. It's actually, it's Ginsburg. Gyn- there you go. That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Ginsburg's the English. So it was yeah. a Ginsberg. Ginsberg. Yeah. Ginsberg. But it's hard. For... Is that, did I get that? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, good. How early in your life did you realise that you were, and I guess the word is an other in the community? Oh, uh, pretty instantly. Yeah. Um, like I say, I grew up eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and it was that's a pretty wide area at the time. And it was sort of us, and there was some Vietnamese family across the road, and that was kind of it. And at school, um, that you might get sort of three non-white kids in a class, maybe, uh, if you're in a particularly cosmopolitan class. <laughs> and that was it. So you kind of made aware of that. And for me, sport was massive as a kid. Um, so if you're playing cricket, you're playing footy, but especially cricket, you know, what comes with that is sledging and um, what comes with sledging is race, right? So that was always part of um, my experience. And then there were the lunchbox um, catastrophes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did your parents prepare you at all? Like, because it feels horrible in your tummy when someone's mean to you for uh, uh, for no reason when you're a kid. I mean, as you're an yeah. older person, you kind of realise, oh, you're just being racist. But when they're kids, <laughs> people don't know. And yeah. you, you must have come home at first, mum, this guy called me this today. Yeah. Do you know, yeah, it's hard as a kid because you know there's nothing you can do, right? So it's a total disempowerment, uh, which is I think what is unique about um, certain kinds of prejudice and racism is probably the major category in that. You know, that, that there is it's, it's total, you are totally irrelevant to the whole enterprise, but yet it is visited upon you in a way that you can't avoid, you know. And it sort of means that you're an easy punchline for everybody 
uh, when anything happens, pretty much. And, and that's a really hard. And, and you say when you get older, you can kind of write it off. I'm not sure that's true, actually. Like, I think if if you look at the experience of someone like um, Adam Goods, you know, I, I looked at what was happening to him and I immediately got what was happening because it was so familiar. But you can see the way it wounded him. It's not that he's not a tough dude or he's not grown up enough or, you know, that, that there's a certain quality to that sort of prejudice that um, if you haven't experienced, you you can't explain, you know. Mm. Oh, sorry, you can't explain even if you have experienced it. And if you haven't, it's very hard to understand. Um, so, yeah, it was tough. But to be honest, um, it was probably, as far as dealing with, um, you know, kids at school and just dealing with growing up in Australia is concerned. Really the main figure is probably my brother because he did the same thing, right? So my parents never grew up here. They, you know, they, they experienced their share of racism. Like dad has or had a um, million stories about the way he was treated professionally, you know, the, the way his qualifications just wouldn't be recognised or the way he wouldn't get jobs he was overqualified for or, or, or very well qualified for and stuff like that to the point where I know they were going to head home. They were going back to Egypt and um, sort of at the last minute, dad got this job and mum was already there. So my brother was born in Egypt because they were intending to move back and then dad was still here just finishing up and the last minute he got some job and he rang mum and said, we're staying. <laughs> so... If it wasn't for that, I'd be I'd be in Egypt now if I existed at all. You know? Right. So, you know, my brother was the one who'd been through growing up in that sort of in that environment. He was the one who taught me how to play cricket. He was the one who taught me how to play footy. You introduced me to all those cultural tropes in Australia, so that they were just indigenous to me. Um, and I think he was probably in that respect, the respect of finding a place within Australian culture. He was the most important figure. Because mum and dad simply couldn't be like they don't have the experience to do that. You know, I don't know if you found the same thing. I'm I'm kind of envious of your experience to be honest. Yeah. Because we were, we played sport. We played soccer. Yeah. Well, that's no. Yeah. Yeah. In Brisbane in yeah, the seventies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nah. It was us and all the other Slavics. That's what. Yeah. yeah. And that's what made your umlauts really uncool. Yeah. We were, well, it was us and all the Euros. It was it. There was yeah. no Aussies there. If you were playing a guitar, maybe. Oh, I tried that later on. That, yeah, worked, that worked out. After okay. the soccer thing, though. No. It's hard no, to come back from that. No, so you were no. playing wogball, right? Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's hard. Like At an all-boys rugby school. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm so sorry. And it was a muso that's, with a Jewish last name. That's bad, man. <laughs> that's, like a, that's a trifecta. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty good. So uh, at what point did you, um, you know, you, you obviously – though managed to rise above the the small mindedness and I guess at that point you could still maybe around kids just call it just inexperience. They just didn't know what they were mm. doing. And I and I've spoken about this on this show before. Um if I remember some of the things that I said that I heard coming out of my mouth, I said them because they made I heard other kids laugh at them and so yeah. I just parroted what they said. I had no idea yeah. what I was saying yeah. um when I said those jokes. Yeah. All right. Uh, every kid's got a story like that. Yeah. So as you, that could have beaten you down, but it did. Mm. It, it, you know, you, you managed to stay engaged enough in education system that you were, then went on through high school and you went on to uni. Did was yeah. it, did you find a way around that? Did you early early on? Did you find a way to rationalise it? Um, well, I want to be careful here because I don't want to overstate it. So, like, it was always present. Yeah, there were moments where it would 
appear like there'd be flashpoints and a lot of them were around sport. But I, I, I'd be lying if I said this was like the dominant experience of my life mm. growing up, you know, and having my brother there really helped in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, I had friends all the way through. I was never, you know, my, my lunchtimes were never cowering in, cowering in a corner while someone tried to kick me in the head. That, that was not my school experience, you know. Uh, and because I had a brother who was so much older than me, I was really good at footy and cricket much earlier than everyone else because in the backyard I was going up against this monster, right? And so when it was kids my own age, it was suddenly easy, right? So, I mean, I got crap pretty quickly, but by that stage the, the social capital had been built, right? Ah. So as long as I was being picked first in the playground, that was kind of cool. Got you know, it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to overstate it, but... Um, as far as like education and just sort of finding your way in spite of the prejudice that was there, you know, I never linked these, those two things. Like it was never, this was never going to be something that was going to cause me to opt out of life. Mm. Uh, I was always going to go pretty hard at whatever it is I was doing. And also remember I came from a family, I, I forgot to mention, my mum was a teacher as well, right? So picture this, she comes out uh, on a boat in Egypt, from Egypt and winds up teaching in a secondary school Australian history and English. Fantastic. <laughs> like not maths or like, yeah. you know, world history or no, 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 Australian history, like ex- like Flinders and that. Colonial you know? history at that. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Uh, the 70s, 60s and 70s curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> where just white people are involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, in English, not ESL, not, not, you know, for kids who don't speak English, like English, like essays and poetry and crap like that, you know. So that's mum and, and mum gave me my love of grammar and um, language and to this day she'll send me texts if I'm on air and I've written or if I've used something that wasn't grammatically correct, she'll send me a text. To, <laughs> yeah. No need for media watch when no, Mrs no. Ali's around. No, no, God, no. <laughs> she, like, um, she... One of her favourites is uh, that the word none is singular, not plural. So it actually is wrong to say none of them are happy. You need to say none of them is happy. But why does that sound so weird in my head? Yeah, because everyone uses the grammatically incorrect construction. Because none is really just not one. If, if you said not one, you would say not one of them is happy. Mind blown. You see what I'm saying? Mind yep. blown. The other one she loves is um, when you say the reason for something is, the next word is not because, the next word is that. So you don't say, the reason that I'm here is because you asked me. Yes. You say, the reason that I'm here is that you asked me. And you if you take mean? anything away from this conversation today, I take, would take take those two things, yeah. be smarter than everyone else today. <laughs> At school or work. I don't know about or... that. But, oh, and she had a thing with redundancies as well, like roundabout. Should we catch up round about 12? She hated that. <laughs> it's a redundancy, a round or about. You don't need both. Don't say both. <laughs> I find that with people I know who, who do speak English as a second language, they just attack it in a massively scholarly way. Yeah, yeah. You know, almost like a methodical, like it were uh, a set of precise gears <laughs> that will not function if they are not perfectly <laughs> yeah, put together. Yeah, that's right. So it's very interesting that you use the – I remember my uncle in Switzerland, he's an English teacher, mm. um, and, he's like, and I would say – I don't remember what he goes, 
you know, it's very interesting that you use the past participle there. And you know, <laughs> like, I don't even past remember what? what they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fast- I, she, she was just a force of nature. But anyway, this was just a roundabout. This is a digression along the way of saying she, for her and for dad, education was just like, it was such a given. Yeah. Like, you know, the idea of do I go to uni or not, that was not a question. It was really just a question of what do I do at uni? Yeah. So, you know, education was always such an important part of our lives. And our dinner table conversations, I think, even though I was probably too young to access them, um, they reflected that. You know, they, we didn't, they didn't, like my parents, my brother didn't talk crap. They, they, was, they were usually debating something or exploring something, you know. Um, so I kind of grew up in a quite a scholastic environment, I suppose. And um, it was you know, nothing I experienced at school was going to stop that or change right. that. <laughs> was uni all right? Yeah, uni was good. Uh, well, you know, good, like uni's that weird, awkward period where you're sort of trying to figure out what the hell you are. I mean, there's that weird, awkward period around year nine and ten where you're doing that. Yeah, I don't know what you're doing. That sort of stuff, yeah. But then you come out and you still have no idea. And then uni, you go through, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of when I went through my religious fundamentalist phase and <laughs> sort of came out the other end, you know, um, but I loved uni because, I mean, I loved what I was studying. So I did yeah. engineering law. Uh-huh. And uh, there's something about particularly the legal stuff that really just turned my mind on. Yeah. Um, gave me a way. Like I think it just played well into the way I'd learned to think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I really loved that. And Do uni's you, just a much more free space. You mentioned religious fundamentalist phase. Were, yeah. you, were you joking or were you, no, 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 no. you got very so, serious? Yeah, like I so saw really around uh, maybe second year. Was that like 19, second. 20? If Whatever came, that is. Where came from, straight from school. Yeah. Most, but I think most people, if they're going to go vegan or if they're going to yeah, go. Yeah. that's when you do it. You know, if they're going to go, you know, go and lock themselves to a tree. Yeah, yeah. That's when they do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I could have joined the Socialist Alliance or something. Yeah. Like, that's the time when it happens. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting was um, that one of the ways I came out of that was through my legal background. Because it was once I actually started learning about the... Islamic legal tradition that I got how subtle and complicated and rich it was. And that really spoke to me as a lawyer. <laughs> and so out of that, I sort of recognize, I recognize the poverty of fundamentalism. Like I recognize, not that I would have ever called myself fundamentalist. Like I wouldn't have, but um, looking back, I would, but like I realized the poverty of that kind of dogmatic approach is that it proceeds from a really, uh, simplistic, thoroughly dumbed down understanding of, well, the world, but also just of text uh, and of scripture. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if I'd only done engineering, it could, it could have been a different story. <laughs> Did you have the, the beard and everything? Uh, not like a monster. Yeah. Yeah. I think I could have passed now for a hipster. Right. That's the problem, right? They're like, Muzos are just hipsters now. <laughs> Is it the moustache, the absence of the moustache? That... That's part of it. Yeah. But it's just that, like, these days, yeah. you can't go too long with a beard now. You can't. Ned Kelly, just yeah. Bushranger. As long as your pants are short. Straight Bushranger. Yeah. <laughs> I call it the neo-colonial look. I don't know if that's a good description or not. No, I like it. There, but some historian can probably uh, yeah. tell me whether that's accurate. <laughs> or maybe so, mum. What was it? <laughs> cool. Text. So what was it? What was it like when? Because I like the only thing that I could possibly relate to is when I first kind of went vegan and I got yeah. initially I was I was just kind of dipping my toe into it, but then I got really into it, mm. and I got very very upset. 
about a lot of things. And then on the other side, I was like, well, this doesn't really, you can't rationally expect the whole world not to eat meat. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit tough to, it's not really okay. I wouldn't want someone telling me I can't do something. Yeah. yeah. So now, and then I kind of came out the other side of like, well, I'll I'll do my bit and I'll participate in it. And if somebody asks me, I'll tell them, but I'm not going to push it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and what was it like when you came out the other side with the the guys that you were on that path with that stayed on that path and you lost touch with and stuff like that? Oh, not really. No? uh, No, it wasn't a group of guys. No? No. It was kind of an atmosphere of university things. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, you go your separate ways. But, but to be honest, I think by the time I left university, I'd sort of left that behind anyway. Right. But it, because um, like I say, I think it was my legal thinking that like that sort of discipline, that sort of understanding yeah. of the world that helped me through it. But um, no, it wasn't like I, I didn't have to say goodbye to old friends. No, no, no. Okay. Well. And, I, and I suspect my stories are quite a common one, to be yeah. honest. Uh, in all the religious groups, like if you go to the, Christian Union on campus or whatever, I don't yeah. know if they still exist, or Students for Christ or whatever, you'd find the same sort of thing. And you follow those people years later and, you know, more nuance emerges. Yeah. That's, you know. Audrey and I were talking about this this last night and we were, you know, you mentioned social media, but, you know, you do have to just turn on SBS late at night and kind of just get sad. <laughs> um, yeah. And that a path out of a lot of the issues in the world at the moment is, is education. Um, would you would, would you agree to that? Would you agree that education can help a lot in yeah, a lot of these things? definitely can. Uh, it doesn't solve everything. So I think the idea that we can educate our way out of every mess, I disagree with because I think some of our problems are to do with the integrity of our characters, not the quality of our minds, and that's a really important distinction. Um, there are a lot of really intelligent bigots. That's when I really hurt my forehead from slapping it so hard. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, when I really hurt that's myself. When, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Like I, I think a lot of the most uh, catastrophic episodes in history uh, are authored by some of the most intelligent people. I suspect Stalin was very bright. So, you know, I don't, but there is also a level of, um, I don't know what you call it, a level of conflict and prejudice that does exist at a sort of reptilian level that's not about, sorry, that, that can be remedied with education, right? Mm. There's, there's a lot of, and I think there's a lot of well-meaning prejudice in that way, you know, stuff that it's just ignorance or it's just insensitivity or people who haven't learnt how to think in the position of someone else, which is what a lot of it comes down to. Um, And when we can't understand something immediately as being immediately referable to our own experience, then we freak out about it. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, But that's not sufficient. Um, You know, I think there are some people for whom they have a very thoroughly thought through malevolent view of the world and they want to impose that view and only thing that education will really do for those people is help them refine that view of the world that's a failure of character because their lens is so super glued on yeah that it can never be shifted from you know all people of this 
insert group here, are yeah. this, insert yeah. character defect and so there. so I will just become more and more ingenious at mounting arguments to that effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of those, particularly genocide. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Title um, movements. Hmm. Uh, or even if they're not genocidal, just ultra-violent or whatever. Um, you know, I think a lot of those movements are a mixture of the intellect, like ideology, mm. uh, and more deep-seated psychological and emotional needs around security, right? Which is why it's no surprise that when you look back at Nazism and fascism and pretty much all of the isms that have been catastrophic, they almost always come after some period of humiliation, Right, so uh, for Germany after World War One um, and the Depression, which hits Germany particularly hard because of its the debt it effectively owes to America um, and the stock market crash. So you have that. That's ripe for for the ideology of Nazism to take root. Um, fascism in Italy after the they, they were on the victor the, the they were with the victors in World War One, but. They call it the mutilated victory because they can get anything out of it, nothing they thought they were going to get, you know. So there's that humiliation and defeat and that triggers a response that's all about pride and returning esteem. And when you're in that situation, education only functions to um, add some intellectual steel to that deeper sort of psychosocial need for rehabilitation. Right. Mm. Which is why I get frustrated when people try to, like, looking at contemporary phenomena like global terrorism, when people try to boil it down to one explanatory factor. So they'll, so they'll say it's all about religion or it's all about ideology or it's all about American foreign policy or whatever. It's like, no, you're missing the point. None of these things on their own is sufficient to cause this. None of them. It's all about the interplay between these things. Okay, yes, there is ideological content. But ideology only ever becomes active in a particular social environment, right, and a particular political environment and a particular identity environment. So you need, the question is not what is the ideology, although that's relevant. The question is what is it about these circumstances that make X ideology attractive? That's where the insights are to be gained. But I think, unfortunately, at all levels of our discourse, um, we seem incapable of sustaining a conversation about that interplay. Mm. Uh, everyone's just dragging, you know, dragging up their one causative factor and trying to make that comprehensive, make it explanatory of everything. 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, sure. but uh, and I probably will be. <laughs> um, but the horrific mess in Syria, I've heard, uh, was traced back to a, a movement over who was. Um, it was a rebellion initially against the people who were controlling which farmers got the water supply because yeah. there was a drought that was caused by climate change. I've heard this theory, yeah. And you know what? It's not, uh, to me, that's not a sufficient explanation. But, uh, but it's one of those factors, you know, right. it's a, a factor so, we're talking about. Yeah, one thing that has received really far too little attention in understanding Middle East politics and Middle East uprisings is the politics of water um, and the politics of just basic food supplies. So like Egypt, for example, when... The revolution happened in Egypt, which wasn't actually really a revolution, as we've now seen. 2011. Yeah. Mm. Um, but when the uprisings happened, um, there were union elements to that and the organisation of unions and their concerns over the treatment of workers. But there were, like at its core, there was, there was a major engine of that that was protests over bread prices, right? So this is what I mean. It's like, what is the cause of the uprising? Is it suppression? And authoritarianism, well, yeah, because that's what they're reacting against and that's what they're seeking to overthrow. And the regime had reached a level of decay that was just unacceptable. But it's not just that. It's that married with all sorts of other social circumstances, such as the economic and resource-based circumstances you've identified with water and but also with food and so on, farms, that sort of thing. But then also with... The structures of modern life, like you know, the information age, mm. and what that means as far as identity formation and um, collective action and organisation and all that, like without any of the pieces of this puzzle, you don't have the puzzle. It doesn't. But I can't happen. be angry at this in 140 characters, will exactly. Exactly. I can't be upset about this in a Facebook post. Or even a hundred, eight, 800 or 1,000 word column. Or a, or a, or a one picture meme. That is of a photoshopped thing that never existed. Yeah. That we're passing off as news that gets shared around Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this this is the culture, I guess, that um, you know, because what you've discussed is, as you said, the nuances of um, uh, the situations are so beyond the comprehension of even the most educated. Mm. I would say, like, hang on, there's more to this. Well, not there's- intrinsically beyond their comprehension. But like the, the like if you sit people down, I think they'll get that. Yes, but in the current way that we and it's you know you work on a news program and you do your very best. I watch you try, uh, but to be able to actively talk to someone about here's actually what's going on, mm. you probably need to write a ten thousand word paper every day mm. or have an hour and a half conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With but, a slideshow. So this is so this is my thing, right? Like. Oh, I don't believe this stuff is incomprehensible. I do believe there is, like I say, a character-driven resistance to trying to understand these things in this complexity because we're in some ways not motivated to understand what's going on. We actually just want to rage about it. At whoever it is, whether it's at America or at Muslims or whatever, in whatever direction we want to rage in, that's actually a motivation, I think, a lot of the time. So there's that. But also the point you're touching on is we don't actually have a forum for the exploration of these things. And that sounds like a weird thing to say in an age where we are so pleased with ourselves about the forums that we have as though they somehow lead us to some higher level of consciousness and awareness about other human beings. That's crap. Like, Sorry, it's just crap. 
our forms are becoming more and more restrictive, less and less capable of having long-range, like multifactorial, nuanced conversations about complex matters like the outpouring of violence in the Middle East, right? We, we actually don't have the forums for it. So we have no way of carrying on this conversation, which means in the 30 seconds or the 140 characters or the 800 words that you might have at your disposal at various times, all you can do is try to say something that will be informative, but it will only ever be partial and it will immediately outrage whoever it is that wants to push <laughs> in the opposite direction yeah. and argue about a different causative factor. Right? Yeah. So we, what, what, what effectively has happened is we, I think our discourse has become fanatical in the sense that we run with an idea and we want that idea to explain everything. Right? Whether that idea be um, refugees are bad or whether that idea be um, white privilege is bad. Like, no part of the political spectrum deserves to be exempt from this accusation. Right? The, the point is that our discourse has become so fragmented, it is necessarily so misleadingly partial. You know? And part of the reason it's partial, I think, other forums and part of it I think our characters are like that so I mentioned social media one of the things I don't like about social media is what it does to the conversation because a the forum issue I've just discussed but b everyone who's entering into social media at varying levels you know of consciousness is engaging in a performance and that's when trying to understand complex things becomes difficult because when if you are trying to understand something complicated in the mode of performing for other people for their approval, then actually you become very quickly wedded to a singular perspective, a singular position, and you become less and less open to being persuaded because that compromises your performance. Right? We're all on a stage now. I want to get those likes, man. Yeah. I want to get those love hearts on my Instagram pictures. That's right. I want to get those retweets. Yeah. What's That's the scoreboard of our lives. Yeah. And I think that's a horrific way for us to try to live. But, I, I, you know, I don't claim that will ever cease. <laughs> like, the, the horse is bolted. Yeah. But I just don't, I just don't find it healthy. And, and, and then it bothers me when I hear people say we're engaging. It's like, no, this is not engagement. This is performance. And as someone whose job it is to, like, perform every weekday, I'm really sensitive to this because I intrinsically recognise that that is a very dangerous mode to be in for a lot of your life. And I, I worry that it's becoming now so ingrained in every part of our lives, down to the food that we choose to order at cafes and whatever. Because it makes a good photo. Right. <laughs> We're becoming constant performers, constant <laughs> reviewers, and constant producers of content without ever stopping and thinking, should I produce any content? Like, you know, sometimes... Shutting up's a good thing. Now, I know this is ironic coming from me. I, I get that. Look, it's okay. But it's one of the reasons I, I choose not to be on social media is I, I'm talking way too much. Like, it, it's a good thing for me not to have another outlet that means that I'm going to have something to say 24 hours a day. It's a good thing for me to shut up occasionally, you know, beyond the moments where I'm contractually obliged not to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned a few things there that I'd like just love to to. to to, to touch on um, I 
have a similar reaction when I see a, a, a particularly poisonous, vitriolic, conservative point of view that is not really fact-based um, get shouted on a mainstream broadcasting uh, <laughs> platform. Um, I'm, you know, talking about living in the States, it'd be a, a Rush Limbaugh or a, or Fox News. Glenn Beck, yeah. Yeah, Glenn Beck or here in Australia. There's some names I won't mention, but it's mm-hmm, there. Yeah. I freak out because I think everyone that doesn't feel like me must feel like that. Yeah. But then I have to remind myself, actually, they're just as fringe. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, just a massive majority of people, bigger than I can conceive, that are, for the most part, fairly reasonable. Yeah. And with enough of a conversation, we'll go, oh, yeah, okay. Mm. But then I worry that by the time you have that conversation, they've already retweeted, liked, and clicked on 400 Facebook posts that are just complete fabrications of yeah. anything that resembles truth, but written in such a way um, that breach every media code of practice yeah. that is masquerading as news, yeah. um, that they just believe so much misinformation. It's almost like you've got to deprogram someone <laughs> before you can really have a conversation with them. Yeah, but I think that's part of the performance dynamic I'm talking about. Because when you perform in a certain way, you become invested. In, like that, that is actually an identity-forming thing. Mm. I'm the guy who likes this stuff. That's who I am, world. Mm-hmm. Come and apprehend me in that way. Appreciate what I'm like, taking this representation of myself. And if I've gone and embedded myself within the cyber community that gathers around Rush Limbaugh, then that is much, much harder to extricate yourself from because you're right, by the time you have that conversation, if indeed you can find a format to have it, uh, there's too much investment. Chips are all on the table. Too, yeah. Yeah. So what's the, you know, that, that's why I think we're, we're witnessing the collapse of persuasion. People don't persuade each other anymore. No one is persuaded. And no one persuades anyone else. And when persuasion disappears, that's the middle ground of discourse. So once persuasion disappears, all you have is trench warfare, just the trading of barbs and insults. Now, I know there are, and for me, social media is a major part of that. I know there will be a million people who will say, but it's great and that's not the way it works for me and it's all about how you use it and I understand those arguments. I just think that might, I've just got the slightest hint that might be bollocks because I see so much of that. I'm not even on it, right? But it comes via a million different ways. It comes to me. And I see people I know have trigger events, like Mm. we were talking about. You know, I see people I really love and respect and admire low because of some inconsequential conversation that's happening on Twitter or because there were insufficient likes to something they did or... Because they posted something in certain spirit and the comments below completely perverted that spirit or whatever. It's just to me, it's a perverse sociology, you know. And um, I realize I sound like a really old man when I say this stuff, and everyone tells me off for that. No, not at all, not at all. The idea, and I noticed this a lot. I've just moved back, I was living in America, I've been there for 10 years, and the notion of any kind of debate where you walked into a debate prepared to leave with your point of view adjusted, yeah. even by a tenth of a degree, 
actually just disappeared. Mm. It was just two people, one wearing a blue tie, one wearing a red tie, just shouting at each other and dismissing everything the other said purely because it came out of their mouths. Because it's performance, right? Yeah. And what happens when you perform? You want it to go well. <laughs> you know? Generally speaking, the performer doesn't perform in order to come out enriched by the failure. <laughs> Which is odd because that's how life works. Right. <laughs> but that's also how discourse is meant to work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if I may dip into uh, the Islamic tradition for a moment, there's one of my favourite comments that's attributed to several different highly esteemed jurists and theologians. But the fact that it's so often repeated is, I think, important, which is I never enter a debate without wishing that the truth is on the other person's tongue because at the end of that I will have learned something. Imagine if we took that attitude into our interactions. I'm not saying I'd do that either, by the way. I'm not saying this is what I am, why aren't you people like that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the whole all the structures of our lives that we are building around us mm. take us exactly like rapidly in the opposite direction to that. And I, I think it's a shame because I think it's a really good, uh, it's a great ethic to bring to discourse. If you go into a debate and win it, you've learned nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's not, it's not even called a debate though. By the well, yeah, well, I guess, yeah. Well, what if you persuaded the other person? Great, but you haven't. That's good for them. Yeah. I suppose we'd want to, we'd want to get something out of, you'd want to get something out of anything. You want what, to, what we're trying to get is the victory. Yeah. Rather than the two of us moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than points on a board. Yeah. Yeah. And but, because we're shouting at each other, it then makes the other person's position so much harder to accept because mm. your back's up, right? People shout at you a lot. Do they? Yeah. People shout at you a lot. Yeah. I was reading, getting ready for this. People like, they write some things about you. <laughs> like almost... And which, which flummoxes me, and it's interesting because I saw a video about it today, exactly this, I wanted to ask you about it, and I saw someone had gone out and filmed it in Times Square today, mm. where people expect you, Walid Ali, in to... In Times Square? No, 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 no. I'll tell you, people expect you to answer for the behaviour of a collective 1.6 billion people oh, right. around yeah. the world, yeah. all right? So basically what um, the white guy that shot up the Planned Parenthood clinic in, in Colorado the other yeah. day, um, some African-American students went into Times oh, Square yeah, yeah. and made white people explain, why is he doing this? Yeah. He's a Christian. Yeah. You're a Christian. Yeah. Tell me. And, you know, they... It was that. That, yeah. was, that was the stunt. That reverse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, so, well, it's, it's a clever way of making yeah, a point. Yeah, making a, making a point because no one ever asks me. No one ever asks me to explain why some Christian fundamentalist did this. I mean, I was baptised, but I don't really care for it. Yeah. Um, I can't. I didn't have a tie in the matter. <laughs> you know, I was a little baby at the time. Yeah. Um, you were giving off a vibe, though. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, what, what do you want people to know about the idea that one, again, we're going back to this idea that there is no forum to have this discussion, mm. but what do you want people to know about the idea of asking one singular person for an explanation about the behaviour of a group of people that have absolutely nothing to do with them? Well, only that it's a pointless, fruitless, inhuman exercise. Like he, there is, unless that one person is elected, right, and even then, um, they don't. They can't represent 
the impossible diversity of that many people. It just doesn't happen. Mm. I, I would go so far as to say one person can't represent any other person. Um, I, that's not to say we shouldn't have representative structures, but I'm just saying if, if what you're expecting is that one person can be answerable for, well, that's ridiculous. That's, it's, but it's so self-evidently ridiculous, which is why the fact that it happens is pointing to something more significant beneath the surface Either something just problematic or something perhaps even sinister, but you know, and that'll vary depending on the form that this expectation takes. But I, I don't actually understand it. I mean, the shouting that you're talking about at me, I don't really know because I, I don't care for it. That's not what I'm about, and I'm not, I suppose, putting myself in these forums. But the bits that I do get through, you know, hate mail in my inbox or whatever, it, it's really obvious to me. Actually, has nothing to do with me. They're very rarely engaging in some kind of critique of something I've actually said. They're normally saying, why didn't you say something else that was not on this topic? <laughs> or why didn't you articulate my own particular prejudice? <laughs> or, um, yeah, but you're a Muslim. <laughs> That's like, it mostly comes down to that. I, I don't know if that describes what you're saying or not. But yeah, that's, that's, that's basically it. Yeah. So... Which then leads us back to something else that you mentioned before, and this is another thing that Nakia Louie and I were talking about, and bear in mind, I'm bearing in mind that I have to let you go in eight <laughs> minutes, um, that behind a lot of this is, from where I stand, behind a lot of this is not only fear, uh, not only is it ignorance, um, I would go so far as to say uh, some version of elitism or arrogance or my version of the world is more important than yours and only I'm allowed to live in this suburb, you're not. <laughs> um, That's interesting. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, a white male heteronormative privilege. Yeah. And anyone that's not that, well, you're not allowed to play. Yeah, so there's no doubt that functions, right? Um, like I've detected in some of the criticism, like I've noticed uh, – and again, it's only little snippets of it I get. Uh, and I don't know how representative it is of the pool of responses. But if I get some award for something, there is a group for whom that will only ever be evidence of tokenism and PC gone mad. <laughs> right? Which is funny, I think. Because if, it were, if there were that much PC gone mad, they'd be a lot more non-white faces on TV. <laughs> <laughs> like, there really would be. Yeah. I mean, what we got, like, two? Yeah. I was at the chemist the other day. Apparently, only white people are allowed to have babies in the nappy section. Yeah, that's right. Only white male babies. Yeah, yeah. The, the rest of us haven't discovered nappies. No. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. this conversation with Yumi yesterday, Yumi just had another son. Yeah. It was right. like, only white male Caucasian babies have... Yeah. Have oh, yeah, that's true as well. Yes. Yeah. The rest of us are yet to acquire the technology. Yeah. <laughs> or allowed to buy it. Yeah. Because they're clearly yeah. not on the cover, so you, you're, this is product is not for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, marketing. It's interesting. But you notice it when you go to the US or you go to the UK. Like, I notice it's much, they're much more ready for that stuff. Yeah. Right? But Australia just hasn't been. And I suspect it has to do with smaller market, yeah. much smaller group of people making 
casting decisions and yeah. things, you know. So you, you get, it's going to be narrow cast, which I, is what But it I is. disagree, though. When, when you look at a show, I mean, I remember this is the thing that stuck out the most about that. It's, it is on the network that I work for, uh, a show called The Great Australian Spelling Bee. When they showed a shot of the audience, I'm like, that's actually what the street looks like. So reality TV breaks the mould because you can't rig the casting in the same way. Well, you can in some ways. Yeah, but, but not really. Like, you know, you have a spelling competition and not a whole lot of, like, subcontinental and Asian kids walk through or whatever, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't kick all of them out. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, reality TV does tend to reflect that, right? Yeah. When I think about the only times I've seen, like, a woman in a headscarf on TV as a thing, like a character. Like there was a character, I think, in the like the librarians on the ABC, and apart from that, it's all MasterChef. Because gotta stop them cooking, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got to eat. So, but they're never going to be casting home and away. No, right? And that narrow casting, by the way, is not just about race. There's all sorts of narrow casting that yeah. goes on to do with appearance of all yeah. kinds, right? But that it, it is a narrow casting. There's no no doubt about that. But the point you're making about you know. You don't belong here. Um, I've detected that. Like, you know, I've detected that there is a certain response that is that, you know. And it's really confusing because on the one hand they're saying, well, you know, you've got to accept our ways and integrate. And then on the other, what they really, what they don't want you is for you to integrate in a way that means you actually have a stake mm. or a voice. Mm. My favourite is the... Uh you know what, oh, look at this, I've got a pack of 10 T-shirts for eight bucks. Hang on, there's a Chinese bloke living down my street. How dare he? Yeah, yeah, like, you don't yeah, put yeah. two and two together? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Because <laughs> it's so, like, yeah, we don't understand the way we are implicated in each other's lives in all sorts of horrible and wonderful ways. Yeah. And that's the perfect example of that. Yeah. yeah. I've seen a bit of that and I've had to have that conversation with a few people. It's like, if you want a $300 47 inch flat screen television. Yeah. Got to remember where it came yeah. from. And somewhere there's a billionaire that makes it. Yes. And he wants his kids to go to school in a lovely yeah. country. Guess what? We live in a lovely country. Yeah. Everything's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's happy. No. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. It is. I, I say this all the time. I, I When I first started this podcast, I'd just come back for Bachelor and it was election season when Abbott was running. I left America, $6.50 minimum wage. No healthcare. I arrive in Australia, sixteen dollar fifty minimum wage, universal healthcare, yeah. clean water out of every tap. Nobody's happy. Everything's no, no, no. apparently the world is ending. Yeah, yeah. We live in the most incredible country ever. Oh, ever. Why stop here? Why stop? Oh, why stop in America? Go to Africa. Oh yeah. Go to Asia. Well, I only used America because everyone is still kind of in this idea that that's the that's the point. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But I'm saying, as far as people who don't have things, oh my god, perfectly happy. See, it's almost like an inverse relationship. Yeah. Which I'm sure it isn't, but, you know, it's, it's yeah. it strikes you that way. We uh, have so much to talk about, Waleed. Sorry. Have I taken you on your way, of course? No. Oh, good. If you look at my questions, we've covered pretty much everything. Oh, really? Oh, good. Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted oh, to talk good, about. Good. This is precisely oh, what... I just ranted. I didn't really... No, no, no. This is precisely what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> but I do have one final question, then I'll take your photo. Yep. Um, you're a father... Yes. I'm a new father oh. of an 11-year-old. Yes. Yes. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. She, yeah, Is it an acquisition? I don't know what to yes. call Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's not officially my stepdaughter. She's my yeah. girlfriend's kid. Yeah. She's starting high school next year. Um, so is mine. What have you got for me? No, I've got nothing. I'm so lost, man. 
<laughs> I'm confused. They're impo it's impossible this age. It's it's so much better. Like you know that whole thing about baby's really tough, but then once you get through that, it's it's easy. No, I mean you're not as knackered. You get some sleep, but you don't know what you're doing. Like once upon a time, it was feed them and change the nappy if if you're allowed to have the nappy because of <laughs> demographic issues. Yes. But you know that's all you got to do. But then when it start like you know dealing with life issues, I don't know. It's complicated. I, my game plan is just bunker down. And just hope you can meet them on the other side somewhere. That's, that's all I can say. That, but that's it. I should no, I should qualify because my daughter is an extraordinary kid. She really is. And that's, I think, the problem. <laughs> She's a little too extraordinary. Yeah, this one's super smart. Yeah. Like, so, so, so smart. So I think we, I heard something recently about smart kids that made a lot of sense to me. Just looking, because my daughter's quite bright. Like, and I think what happens is, they're intellectually so far ahead of where they are emotionally. Ah, uh, yeah. I'd say that's exactly and true. And it's in that contradiction mm -hmm. that all this... It's in that space that the, that the conflict happens. Yeah. 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 Because they're not actually ready for the intelligence they have. They're not ready for what they can intellectually comprehend. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's no pill for that. Like, I don't... No. There's nothing I can... I, I just got... I got told... Because I ask everyone that's ever had a stepdad, I just ask, you know, what do I do? And they just said, just just show up. Yeah. Just, well, just, that, just be there. That is part of it, yeah. That's it. Which makes me feel guilty about the hours I work. You'll be fine. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you've got to go. I'm going to take your photo. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh. I, I hope uh, it was all right. Are you kidding? This is perfect. Good. Perfect. 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 Well, my mum will see about that. <laughs> If there's any grammatical errors in it, <laughs> she podcasts this, we'll know. That was Waleed Ali. I'd say follow him on Twitter, but he's not on Twitter or Facebook or anything. Um, and, I'm, you know, for good reason. I, I really appreciate what he was talking about and his point there really resonated with me and I'm going to... I guess I'm going to explore what life might be like with less Twitter in my life. I'm going to see how that feels. Just going to see how that feels. There'll still be more podcasts. Don't worry. There's always going to be podcasts. Um, thanks for listening. If you're uh, around Australia and uh, you feel like tuning into the radio in the morning, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and, yeah, we'd love your support. That'd really help. Anyway, oh, I've got to go. Uh, take care of yourself this week. Enjoy this time of year if you're in Australia or the States as things are winding up as we head towards the holidays. Uh, be kind, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 